Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to the Gospel according to Mark. And we're turning to Mark chapter 14 and uh, picking up our reading at verse 43. For those using the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 851. Mark chapter 14 at verse 43. This is speaking about Jesus. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one uh, I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. We have been looking at uh, the the passion or uh, this uh, suffering point in Jesus' life. And we have looked at uh, the Passover uh, feast that Jesus wanted to celebrate with his disciples. He was wanting them to understand the nature of what his death would accomplish. But you remember that after the celebration of the Passover, it tells us that in the night Jesus left uh, and went out to the Mount of Olives that on the eastern side of uh, the city of Jerusalem, uh, the slope would descend and uh, it would go down to a section that is called the Kidron Valley. And then it would incline. And the Mount of Olives actually stood over top of uh, the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. But uh, between these two sections is this valley where Jesus uh, ultimately went to a garden to pray. And when Jesus was in that garden, he was praying if it was possible for the cup that was allotted to him to pass from him. But you remember how ultimately Jesus submitted uh, to the will of God, realizing that this was the only way, this was the will of the Father. And so uh, as Jesus prayed, uh, he ended that prayer by saying, let us go and meet uh, my betrayer. And this this morning, we want to look at uh, the arrest of Jesus. Uh, uh, how Jesus was arrested, but also what it tells us about Jesus and about ourselves. Uh, Jesus, you remember when he was in the garden, he was trying to tell the disciples about the importance of being vigilant, uh, to keep alert, uh, to be aware of what is coming, because they didn't sense any danger. Jesus was telling them to be in prayer, uh, but the disciples were uh, uh, sleeping each time that Jesus checked on them. But Jesus, aware of what was coming, did pray and was ready and prepared to 
to face uh, the danger that did come. And this morning we want to look at uh, the arrest of Jesus, but we want to see that uh, Jesus is really being treated as a robber and as a danger uh, to society. That's what the arrest is all about. Uh, This man is a danger. Uh, But ultimately we want to see that this man is a deliverer, uh, that he's a redeemer. Uh, This man is actually what we're to trust in ultimately and not to view as a threat. We want to look at these verses in three thoughts. We want to think about the act of betrayal. We want to think about the arrest. And then finally, we want to think about Jesus's address uh, to, his cap- uh, to those who come to uh, capture him. Well, first, uh, there is the act of betrayal. Uh, it tells us there in verse 43 that immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Uh, Mark does not elaborate on the the composition of this crowd, who's actually in this crowd. Mark simply tells us that they came from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Uh, In other words, Mark wants us to understand that this crowd uh, of men that come with their weapons is not an angry mob. Uh, This is an official party that is being sent by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, this is uh, an authorized party being sent out uh, with authority. Um, we're told in Luke's gospel uh, that it included the temple officers, uh, but it could have included even more than that as well. Uh, but whoever is sent out, uh, they come with their weapons and they come to arrest Jesus, hoping to take him, uh, expecting it to be one uh, by force. But they were sanctioned uh, by the religious body. And it tells us uh, when the betrayer came, uh, they had already predetermined how they were going to arrest him. uh, That it would need to be done by a sign because Jesus wouldn't be by himself and it would be in the darkness of the night. It might seem odd uh, that uh, Judas needs to single out uh, who actually to arrest, but it is dark. Uh, And uh, so Judas has to not only identify the whereabouts of Jesus, but which one they ultimately have to target. This again tells us that it's not the disciples broadly uh, that are at the focal point, but that they are more circumstantially wrapped up in what is coming against Jesus. But uh, Judas comes up uh, and has predetermined that he will betray Jesus with a kiss. An act of apparent love would actually be the gesture uh, expressing his hatred of Jesus. Uh, That Judas would come uh, not to betray Jesus from a distance, but that he would do it to him face to face. And so he comes and he betrays uh, Jesus with uh, a kiss. One of the most painful experiences uh, that we can have in life is that of betrayal. When someone that is close to us uh, betrays our trust, uh, it, can, it can upset and it can rock our, our whole way of looking at life. Uh, it can undermine our ability to trust uh, that person or to trust other people. Uh, it can uh, cause us uh, to question our perception of things uh, in other contexts. Uh, what else have I not been understanding rightly? Uh, It can leave us wounded uh, as a result of being pained by someone that was so close to us. But as we're thinking about betrayal here, Jesus himself uh, was betrayed. 
Jesus himself knows what it's like uh, to be betrayed by someone that was close to him, someone that was his companion, someone that was his friend, someone that was in his company. Uh, Jesus himself knows the truth that profuse are the kisses of an enemy, uh, someone that was close only to act with hatred towards you later. And so as we think about that, we realize that Jesus is one who sympathizes and can sympathize with us even in the most painful aspects of our own experience. That even things that wound us deeply, our Savior knows what it's like to go through those experiences. But Jesus not only experienced betrayal himself, Jesus knows where to turn to in his betrayal. Uh, Jesus was praying in the garden and he was praying to his heavenly father because he knew one who he could trust, one who would be reliable. And so as Jesus here uh, um, experiences betrayal, he also knows who he can trust unconditionally. Even though Jesus was betrayed by a close companion, one with whom he ate bread with, as the psalmist says, ultimately Jesus was able to respond by depending on his father. Again, that underscores why it was so uh, stressed by Jesus to be in praying. That, that we need to pray. Because Jesus was going to experience something awful. He was going to be betrayed. His disciples would experience something of a shock as well. Seeing one of their own act in this way would have upset their system as well. And again, if they're going to be able to process these shocking events, they need to be grounded in something that is certain. And Jesus here says the answer is to turn to the Lord. It is to pray. And so this act of betrayal is uh, affected by Judas, and it is uh, expressed by way of a kiss, an apparent uh, gesture of love expressing his mission of hate. But then secondly, we read of the arrest itself, uh, which is actually uh, given to us in a very succinct way. Uh, The arrest is recorded very straightforwardly. It says that they laid hands on him and they seized him, and there is no sign of any resistance on Jesus' part. If you read each of the gospel accounts, uh, you'll notice that each of the gospel writers want to focus in on certain aspects of what is happening during the Passion of Christ and during the arrest of Jesus. Uh, You'll see how some of them, like John, will highlight how Jesus confronted uh, those who came to arrest him and said, "Who who are you looking for? And then Jesus said the words, I am, only for them to fall back uh, at those words. Or you can read about how uh, the one it tells us here, uh, it simply makes a point that uh, they laid hands on him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Uh, the one that is being spoken of here is told to us in another gospel was Peter. It was Peter who struck the servant of the high priest. His name was Malchus, and he cut off his ear. And we're told that Jesus healed that uh, man uh, who had his ear cut off. Uh, but more than that, Jesus rebuked Peter for what he was doing. Uh, Jesus told Peter what he was doing was actually foolish. And we might look at this and think that here we are uh, finally proud of Peter uh, because he's standing up for Jesus. 
He said that he would die for Jesus, that he would not turn away. And here is Peter taking matters into his own hands to protect Jesus. And so we, we instinctively may think, finally, Peter is standing up. And yet Jesus rebuked Peter for it. Why? Because what Peter was doing here is he was trying to advance Christ's purpose by the sword. Peter was trying to use uh, the force uh, to advance uh, what he thought was right in God's eyes. But more than this, it was wrong of Peter to act in this way, not only because he was using the the sword, but because he was assuming that Jesus was helpless in this situation. You remember how Jesus answers. He says, do not think that I can call 12 legions of angels and they will come. Jesus wasn't actually in a helpless situation, uh, but Peter was acting as though he was. And so it was missing the fact that Jesus was not unable to protect himself, but was willing not to protect himself. And then thirdly, it was foolish of uh, Peter to act in this way because Jesus himself had said these things would happen. This was going against what the scriptures had testified, that Jesus must be given over, that Jesus would be arrested, and Jesus ultimately would be crucified. But Mark here isn't focused on all of those things. He mentions that there was someone that cut off someone's ear, but that's not where he's zeroing in. Mark's focus in these verses is really on the way that Jesus addresses those who come to arrest him. And that's where we want to spend our, our time this morning. We want to really think on not just the betrayal of Judas, not just the arrest that comes, uh, but ultimately the way that Jesus speaks to those that come to arrest him. And we see that in verses 48 and 49. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Jesus here addresses the crowd, challenging them to think about what they're doing and to ask them about the integrity of their actions. He's putting the focus back on them to think about what they're doing. The word that Jesus uses here is the word robber. You see that there. You have come out as against a robber. That word robber can be used for anything for the the low-scale mere bandit, the thief, the common thief, all the way up to someone who was a political insurrectionist, someone that was trying to overthrow the government, a revolutionary freedom fighter. Uh, And that word has a wide range. But when Jesus says you've come out with clubs and swords, it seems not to be simply thinking about a thief. But the way that you are handling me is saying that I am a threat that needs to be dealt with at all costs. In other words, we're going up the scale here, that you're treating me as though I'm an insurrectionist. You're treating me like I'm a political threat. You're treating me like I'm a danger to society. Why would you come out and try to arrest me at night? And so Jesus here is really pressing them to think about their own actions. What grounds do they have for treating Jesus as someone so dangerous? Especially when you think about how Jesus taught. You remember when Jesus taught, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus didn't show sympathy towards the insurrectionists, 
who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. Jesus was not trying to produce uh, a, a political anarchy. He wasn't trying to uh, use force uh, to throw off the Romans. He said to give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And that would have probably uh, not met with great support from all uh, hearers. But Jesus did not lend support uh, to the idea of uh, being an insurrectionist. But then more than that, Jesus uh, challenges them about their actions. If they're so convinced that Jesus was a danger... Why didn't they arrest him in the temple when he was there day after day after day teaching? Right now, you're treating me like I'm a danger. I'm a threat that needs to be dealt away with. But why didn't you treat me like a danger when I was in the temple during the daytime? Why are you so passive towards me in the temple, but now in the darkness when your deeds won't be seen? you act in a very different way. In other words, Jesus is going beyond just asking them, do you really believe that I'm a threat? To getting down to the level of motive. What is it that's driving you to act in two diametrically opposed ways? Where you say on the one hand, he's a threat. And on another hand, when you see me, no threat at all. You're willing to be passive as I taught in the temple day after day after day. And so Jesus here is really pressing them uh, to see their own actions and to show uh, that it was, there's something insincere going on here. That, that they did not act uh, simply thinking that he was a threat, but more than that, they did not want their actions to be placed under scrutiny. They treated Jesus as uh, a danger to society because he was threatening their own sense of control, because he was disturbing the way things were. These men had come out to arrest Jesus because they perceived Jesus to be a threat to their way of life. But because Jesus was held in high esteem among the people, as a prophet or even as the Messiah, they wanted him to be killed without drawing attention to their deed. So in spite of Jesus' appeal to the inappropriateness of their actions, they weren't going to be reasoned with, and they were going to proceed with the arrest. But do you notice what's happening there in that whole address? He challenges them to think about what they're doing. You come out treating me like I'm I'm a danger, but you didn't act that way consistently. What's driving you is not simply the perceived threat of Jesus. What's driving you is a a desire to control, a desire that does not want to acknowledge what Jesus was doing and ultimately trying to remove him because he is attacking something that you cherish, their sense of control. The same thing happens today, the same hostility towards Jesus. Some people are convinced that Christianity is dangerous to society. Some people think that Christianity should be suppressed, meaning it should not be allowed in the public sphere, or even worse, that it should be removed and not tolerated in the nation. That Christianity is actually a threat, a danger uh, to society. But we have to ask ourselves, on what grounds, what evidence, what basis do you have to actually say that Jesus is a threat to society? Is it a threat to society when Jesus says that we are to love our neighbor and to love our enemies? 
Is it a threat when Jesus teaches us that we are to uphold the truth and to be merciful unto others? Is it a threat when Jesus teaches us that we are all corrupt, that we have a common problem universally, that we all stand in need of God's wisdom, that we all stand in need of God's grace and of God's truth? In what way is Jesus dangerous? Is it dangerous when Jesus teaches us that we should deny ourselves and be servants of others? Is it dangerous when Jesus says that God draws near and cares for his creation? In what way exactly is Jesus dangerous? But then we have to go to the other level. Because not only do people treat Jesus like he's dangerous, we have to ask the question, what is it that motivates that? If we're not truly convinced that Jesus is dangerous, then there's something of a motive that is driving us. You may find yourself treating Jesus as dangerous, not because he threatens the truth, but because he threatens your sense of control, your sense of autonomy over all things. There's a philosopher, his name is Thomas Nagel, and he said this, he says, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't want to believe in God, and that I don't believe in God, and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want there to be a universe like that. Nagel is being very honest. He doesn't want to live in a world where he's accountable to anyone above himself. He doesn't want to live in a world where there's a moral order that he's accountable to. Someone else, Aldous Huxley, once said for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. Liberation from a certain system of morality. We object to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. What was he saying? He's saying, I don't want to live in a world where there's a moral order because I want to live freely according to my desires. And I attack any form of religion that is going to call to question the way that I pursue desire and pleasure in this life. Because ultimately what I want is pleasure. I don't want to live accountable to anyone else. And so as we think about why is it that there's a hostility towards Jesus, even today? Is it because we really believe that Jesus' teachings are dangerous to society? To be a servant of all, to be loving, to be merciful, to, to pursue the truth, to believe that God is relevant and is involved in caring of his creation. In what way is God, Jesus dangerous? But then we also have to go deeper and ask the motive. Why is it that on one hand, we would treat Jesus this way unless we are trying to protect our own sense of control. The temple officers that came to arrest Jesus needed to face their own actions. How could they justify coming out with clubs uh, in this way? Was it because Jesus was subverting the truth or was it because Jesus was exposing their idolatry in life? And we have to ask the same question ourselves and you have to answer it. If you're not trusting in Christ, why? You have to give an answer. If you treat Jesus as something of a danger, a danger in what sense? A danger to the truth? 
or a danger to something that you're cherishing. You see, the Bible teaches us that whatever we're living for, if it's not God, it's an idol. Not a physical thing, but an idol is something that we give ourselves to, that finds fulfillment of meaning in life, that gives us security, and that satisfies our longings. The problem with an idol is, is that it can't do any of those things. That in the long term, it will not satisfy us. We will give more and more of ourselves over to that, and it'll give us less and less in return. It won't be able to address the problems that we face in life. It won't be able to atone for the guilt that we lay within, and it'll leave us less and less satisfied. But Jesus is not an idol. Jesus came into this world to bring truth. Jesus came into this world to atone for our sins so that we would no longer be condemned by our sins. But more than that, Jesus came to fulfill our longings, not just in the short term, but in the long term. And here's the thing. The more that you give yourself over to trusting in God, the more satisfying it is. An idol you give yourself over more and more, and it gives you less and less. You, you depend on it to fulfill more and more of your life's longings, and it can't live up to that, and you become enslaved to it. But when you give yourself over to Christ more and more, it's more and more satisfying because you have more joy, a joy that's not based on your circumstances. You have more peace because you have peace with God. You have more hope because you have a knowledge of the future based on his promises and based on his accomplishments. You have a, a deeper love. Your love is not simply based on the object of one's worthiness, but is based on a response to God's love for you. You have more compassion because now you treat people not on the basis of what they deserve themselves, but on the basis of what you see in yourself. Knowing that God was compassionate towards you, you can be merciful towards others. You see, it becomes more the more that you acknowledge Christ, not less. And so here, these people are attacking Jesus. They are arresting Jesus. They're treating Jesus as a threat, a danger. We need to get rid of him. And Jesus simply asks the questions. Why are you coming with clubs? Do you really think I'm a robber? And then he's asking, why didn't you do this during the daytime? Because you didn't want to be seen for your deeds. Because you knew they wouldn't stand up to scrutiny. You know that many people would disagree with you. You know that your reputation is on the line. But what about us? How are we reflecting? How are we thinking about Jesus? Do we think that Jesus is a threat to society? That somehow everyone is going to suffer because of Jesus' teachings? Then substantiate that claim. Give evidence of that claim. Show how is it that Christianity is so terrible. How Jesus' teachings are so terrible. But if it's not because Jesus says something that's not true, then it comes down to motive. What it is that we are ultimately cherishing. What it is that is controlling us. These religious teachers, these temple officers, they were wanting the order and control. They were wanting to remove Jesus so that they remained in control. Are we doing the same ourselves this morning? Jesus ultimately tells them, uh, 
he addresses them by saying, uh, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And this is uh, what we find. The truth of the matter is, is that Jesus' arrest was something that was revealed in scripture. As a servant of the Lord, Jesus willingly went to the cross by his own choice, and his disciples turned and fled as it was foretold. He, his close companion betrayed him as it was written in the scriptures. His disciples abandoned him as it was written in the scriptures. He was treated as a criminal, even though there was no deceit in his mouth, as it was written in the scriptures. Jesus was treated like a robber and a thief. But the truth is, is that Jesus is a rescuer and one that we are to trust. It goes on to tell us something of that sense of abandonment as well. In verse 51, it says that a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But panic overtook him. And to escape their clutches, he was willing to run away naked in order to escape being arrested. But here's Jesus. No struggle. No resistance. Because he's willing to be arrested. He's willing to be a rescuer. Because the truth is, is that God's purpose is to bring salvation from sin. This is the kind of rescuer that we can trust in. One that was willing to lay down his own life in order to set others free. He's not a danger to society. He's the deliverer of society. He's not a robber. He's the redeemer. How do you think about Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about your word, we would see how uh, the old covenant scriptures point ahead and uh, anticipate uh, what the servant of the Lord would experience. But we pray, Lord, as we think about Jesus' address uh, to those who came to arrest him, that it would cause us to examine our own hearts as well, that we would be people who are pursuing truth and not simply uh, pursuing pragmatics that we would be people that are concerned about our own uh, commitments of our hearts, uh, realizing how easily idols uh, take shape in our life. And help us, Lord, to realize the bankruptcy uh, of these idols, that we would see that only, uh, only you uh, can fulfill the longings of our heart, only you can satisfy uh, and atone for the guilt within, and only you uh, brings true liberation that does not enslave. So go before us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.